Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Daniel Yeselanis. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. By way of background, I'm here in Philadelphia on a business trip and have a free night, and Daniel is my friend and lives in Philadelphia and has a really unique um, story to tell as part of joining the church, serving a mission, working through really complicated things. And so this is a weeknight in December, and Daniel's agreed to share his story on our podcast. Um, Daniel is a great friend of mine. I've gotten to know Daniel first through social media, and then we've spent some time over the phone and um, one other time here in Philadelphia before he left on his mission. Um, he is a great man. He offered a wonderful prayer before we started, and this is little bit of his story and then the overview. Daniel is 25. Um, he joined the church in the summer of 2015. Um, he's a graduate of Temple University, which is here in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's in North Philadelphia. North Philadelphia. He um, um, grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then he bravely accepted a mission call in December of 2017 to the Colorado Springs, Colorado Mission, served for nine months and then came home um, as an early return missionary. Some take on the label early release, but we'll talk about him being an early return missionary. And we'll talk about two things in particular, I guess three. One is why Daniel joined the church, um, being in, being here on the East Coast, and then his decision to serve a mission, and then what happened on his mission, which is really a great deal of emotional help that came to the service that needed to be dealt with. And I appreciate him being vulnerable to talk about his emotional health because I think that gives hope and perspective to others of you that are listening that are wondering if you'll ever be able to pull out of the dark soul of the night, so to speak. And and Daniel has pulled out of really difficult space um, and also worked through faith crisis. Daniel is a committed member of the church, temple worker, holds a calling here in his YSA ward in Philadelphia, um, but has had to work through you know, just really honest questions about our faith. So Daniel's worked through a couple really hard things in his life. Um, anything that I said that needs to be corrected, Daniel? No, that, that all sounds good. So um, let's just start with the beginning of your story. We could really go back to the beginning, but you're, what attracted you to the LDS Church? So, um, I mean, it, it was all kind of a, kind of a weird chain of events that I now know is I now know was guided by heavenly father. Um, but I initially, when I was in college, I was just really interested in other religions. Um, I was taking a bunch of religion classes. Um, I was an advertising major, but I had a ton of electives. Um, and so I took a lot of religion classes. I grew up a very strong Protestant evangelical, particularly Presbyterian and I was always just kind of interested in religion and I, I, I was reading a lot about different faiths and visiting different faiths, not for any, not for, not, not to, because I was interested in necessarily joining, joining any of them. I just wanted to see what they were like. And at the same time, while all this was happening, I started to really feel a disconnect from my Presbyterian faith that I had grown up in. And I started to feel like I came to college and I tried to live it and I tried to, I tried to do my best. I went to church every week and I, 
was in great churches with great people, great pastors, but I started to feel more and more disconnected. I felt like God wasn't very real or tangible to me. Um, I felt nothing when I prayed. I felt sadness. I felt discouraged. I, I just felt like God was this kind of like metaphorical, metaphorical force out there. Um, and he was angry and that he, and that really frustrated me. And I started to lose a lot of my faith. I, even for the first time during that, that time is when I started to doubt whether God existed at all. Um, and so, like I said, at the same time, this was all happening. I was reading a lot about different churches and I started reading about the LDS church. Um, we're not supposed to say that anymore, but whatever, <laughs> um, online. And, you know, I can't say that I learned much online, but something about it just really drew my interest. And I decided to go to a ward just to see what it was like. And so I showed up to, uh, the Philadelphia YSA ward, not realizing it was a YSA ward. I went because it was at two, which made it very easy to go to. <laughs> and, um, I showed up in a shorts and a polo and I just walked in confidently and was like, Hey, where's the church service? Which clearly, um, clearly made me something of an, a clear non-member, like alarm blaring off. And I just had a wonderful experience that day at church. Like I just, cause I had been taught so many negative things growing up about the church that like that it was a cult. They weren't Christian. Um, that they were even demonic um, and satanic. But I was so touched at that first week. I remember all the talks, just the peace that I felt. Um, I just remember hearing about how God was our loving Heavenly Father. I was just like, wow. And I remember hearing about, um, I remember hearing about the, I remember hearing about the atonement in the Book of Mormon and just hearing, 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 hearing people talk about how the gospel had helped them overcome personal challenges and I was really moved in and I, I obviously, um, the missionaries invited me to meet with them. And even though I was not planning on that happening, I accepted their invitation. It's, uh, it's kind of courageous of you just to walk into church, Daniel. And I'm glad that that first experience was helpful. Um, but it's, and it sounds like not only the people were kind, but the doctrine you heard resonated with you. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about just the core doctrine in our faith that keeps you in the church. Um, I'm going to skip kind of quite a bit of your story and um, tell our listeners, let's just tell our listeners where you got called. I got called to the Colorado, Colorado Springs Mission. And how long did you leave on your mission after you're baptized? I left two and a half years after I was baptized. And um, at this point, your station in life is you're single. Obviously, you're single. <laughs> um, you're tell our listeners how old you were and what you're doing professionally and what that meant to go on a mission. So I graduated from Temple in 2016. Um, and I started working at a publishing company, um, a large academic publisher in their marketing department. And I worked there for a year and a half. And so um, to go on my mission um, was two and a half years after I got baptized. A year and a half after I started my job, I I left my whole job. Like I, I quit my job to go on my mission. Um, 
you know, I'm not going to lie and say like my job was this amazing, perfect thing. Like there are definitely some struggles and it wasn't everything I wanted, um, but it was a good job and I had great coworkers and I left that to go to Colorado. And you were, maybe you said this, how old are you right now? Uh, I am 25 years old right now. So, and this is kind of maybe when I connected with you. I think we had dinner. We connected on Twitter. Surprise, surprise. I think we followed each other and um, you, we may have traded some DMs as you were joining the church or in the church. And then we ended up having dinner. And I just, I look at my own sons that, you know, have planned their whole life to go on a mission. It kind of fits in because it's right after high school and right before college. But then I look at you and you've, you know, worked so hard to graduate from college. You've got this great advertising degree from Temple. You've got a good job. You're 25. Um, you're dating. You're thinking it'd be great to be married. Um, we, now, do I have your right right age? Tell us what you are right now. I'm 25 right now. So Sorry. you're 23. I was 23 when I left on my mission. Okay. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> my bad, too. And I just recognize what you, you know, the sacrifice um, and the faith. Why did you serve? Why did you want to serve a mission, Daniel? I, like, knew I wanted to from when I first joined. Like, I was, when I was... I was unprepared for how much the missionaries would bless my life. And I was unprepared for how much a bunch of 18 year old kids who could barely write like a grammatically correct text message, um, the impact, the spiritual impact they could have on my life. And I was so grateful to them for everything they did for me. And I just really wanted to give back. Like I, I wanted, I wanted to, show heavenly father that i was grateful for what he did with me to allow me to go into the church i wanted to show him that i was grateful for how the gospel had changed my life and i, I really wanted to share w the joy of um the savior um, with others what a great reason for serving a mission what were your greatest fears going into the mission yeah um my greatest fears were there were a lot of, there was obviously uncertainty about my job. Like I had no idea what was going to happen afterwards. Um, I had a lot of fears about relationships, like friendships, because YSA awards are so transient. And I was like, when I get home in two years, no one's going to be there anymore. And like, what is that going to do to my friendships? Like, am I going to start over? Like, you know, am I going to have all new priesthood leaders? Like, these are my only relationships in the church. What's going to happen to them? And then in terms of, serving the mission I was just you know I was afraid about I was afraid about talking like talking to people you know I I'm a pretty sociable person once I get to know people but I'm terrified at introducing myself and I was afraid about that and I mean also just the intensity of working 16 hours a day like I was a little scared it's honest <laughs> I remember some of my fears. Um, it's, I think it's pretty normal to have fears. It's a great unknown. I love your reasons for wanting to serve a mission. Those are great reasons. And it's a credit to you and the missionaries that blessed your life and your desire then to bless other people's lives. Um, I remember writing at times during your mission and getting some, you know, talking at times. And um, talk about Part of the story of your mission is declining mental health, emotional mm -hmm. health that led to you coming home. But let's just hang on to that thought for a second. Is there other things you'd like to communicate about 
your mission to our listeners <clears throat> yeah. during those nine months? So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to, before we talk about kind of some of the, the mental health stuff and some of the negative impressions I have from my mission, I'd like to reemphasize that it is one of the the most defining and in a way positive aspects of my life. It really, it really changed me for the better. Um, it was just a wonderful experience. Like to me, like I'm from Philly, well, I'm from, I'm from Pennsylvania, but I'd lived in Philly <clears throat> for five years. Like I'm a city guy and I moved to Colorado where there are no city lights and people ride horses and have guns <laughs> and ride pickup trucks and do farm work. And it was just a culture shock. It was like a foreign country. And I got to learn to love and to know people who were so different to me, be it, you know, lifestyle, um, in terms of like working or political beliefs. Um, I tend to be a little more center left, um, on the liberal end of things. And, everyone there was rather conservative. And so I think as I think about my mission, I think about that's one of the most important things I learned was just how much heavenly father loves all his children, no matter how different they are, no matter what challenges they have. Um, and also just the joy that I felt in the meaning that it provided me. Um, cause I had had like, you know, I had a job before I had a, a lot of success at Temple and the advertising program. I had some really good internships and I was doing things that were considered like successful in my field, but none of them before or since have ever felt like it was, it was important as being a missionary. Like I felt so much meaning and like seeing the people who I taught and seeing their lives change. Um, and even knowing that I had very little effect over that because, you know, as we all know, like heavenly father and the spirit are the people that, and it's the people like they're the ones being courageous and they're the ones taking those steps of faith and accepting commitments to missionary are just kind of, we're just kind of there as like the people who are there to help them along. But really they do all the work and the spirit does the work and heavenly father does the work, but just seeing that they're just seeing people's lives change it just realized I was like this is the most important thing I could do and I I still think of my mission like that and I just you know I'm I'm grateful for my mission president we had a very loving relationship I don't attribute any of the negative experiences I had on my mission to him I had wonderful companions seven wonderful companions I I think I'm one of the only people in the world who didn't have a difficult mission companion <laughs> and I it was a great blessing. It's a good, there's a great spirit as you talk about your mission. I wish our listeners could just see your your face lit up as you think back on these nine months you spent in Colorado and your love for the people. And and it's interesting. Uh, you can have a cultural shock. People would think cultural shock, and they think about a missionary leaving the United States and going to a different country. But our country's pretty diverse, Daniel. And yeah, absolutely. You can have a, you know, I come, I, we just flew in, you know, my business partner and I are here for a meeting tomorrow and we landed in Philadelphia and it's a big metro city with lots of people and lots of infrastructure. So it almost feels to me coming here that I love the East Coast, but it's a big complicated city um, compared to where I live. And there's just beautiful diversity in our, in our country. Talk about um, your, 
I don't know if I'm going to use the terms mental health or emotional health, but it just uh, share with our listeners. Was it was it okay for you know eight and a half months, and then it just completely reversed, or where you felt like you were on a slow decline, and just kind of walk our listeners through what was going on with you, and then ultimately what made sense for you to come home. So I had never had a diagnosed psychiatric history before my mission. Um, looking back, I can see little things that are like, oh, maybe that was depression or maybe that was mental illness. Um, maybe that was bipolar disorder, but, and I've since coming home found out that I have a serious family history of these things. Um, but I had no diagnosed psychiatric history. And so it's, it started slowly and I didn't realize for a long time that the things that I was feeling were not normal for another missionary. I didn't realize that it wasn't normal to have so much anxiety that you were lying on the ground in your bathroom crying because you didn't know what to do. And that was in my first area. I just felt that was part of a mission being hard. I didn't realize it wasn't normal to just come away from zone conference feeling depressed because I just felt like it couldn't measure up and getting really angry and upset at myself. And so the first couple transfers, um, it, it kind of was little stuff like that. Like I remember we, my companions really wanted to go contacting a Walmart and I was not comfortable doing that. And I they wanted to go into a Walmart to contact. Yes. Like in the store to go like basically like street contact and Walmart, which I was not comfortable with, but Why? I, I just felt like for me, it was like one, this is clearly against the rules of the store. Two, it's not going to be very effective because, um, like, I don't know, when we go around where people expect us to be, aka knocking under doors or talking to them in the park, people don't want to listen. What makes us, like, what makes you think that they're going to want to listen as we ambush them while they're shopping? We would certainly get kicked out. And also, like, I just, it didn't, it didn't feel right. And, but instead of communicating that feeling in like a rational way, I had a panic attack and I just couldn't go inside. Like I ran out, I ran outside and just sat in our car and didn't say anything. Then my companions drove me home and they were super loving, you know, and they gave me a blessing and stuff. But I felt like that was just part of the normal part of being a missionary. I felt like that was a deficiency in me. And as, so that was my first couple transfers, things like that, that looking back were really bad and not normal. But to me, I was like, this is just part of being a missionary. And then, it just started getting really bad. I started having a ton of anxiety that it was hard for me to sleep. I would think about it all day. I would think about it while I was, I was, you know, I was tracting. Give us an example of what you're thinking about. I was constantly worried about what people thought of me. I was constantly worried that the members on our ward hated me. They loved me. I was constantly worried that my companion hated me that he loves me. I was constantly worried that I was disobedient. Any little thing that happened that I wasn't exactly doing the right thing. And it was weird because like, I knew like deep down that like, you know, it's okay if you sometimes end up doing something like you end up accidentally watching TV at Taco Bell or something. That's okay. But I would stress about that stuff and I would stress about being late to things. And I, it was so like, everything was amplified. If that makes sense. Every normal concern was like 
up times 10. And I struggled, I struggled a lot. Um, and then as it, like it continued on, um, starting in my beginning of my fourth transfer, so I served six transfers. Um, at the beginning of my fourth transfer, so right around my halfway point of what ended up being my halfway point, um, it just started to get very, really bad. And I called my, uh, I called my mission president and I said, I want to see a therapist. Um, and I started seeing him and we started talking about anxiety. We started talking about depression and I love my mission president. He, he, he had me drive up over an hour every week to see this therapist. He didn't care about the miles. He didn't like, he felt like I had to be in that area but he also wanted me to see a therapist and that was really touching to me um, that he cared that much about me. Um, and like my therapist and I, we talked about, we talked about depression. We talked about anxiety. We talked about coping strategies. We talked about the way the brain works and it was getting better. It felt like it. And I would leave those appointments feeling like it was going to get better and it got worse. And that's kind of when I started having, that's when I started having suicidal thoughts and thoughts of self-harm. I started punching myself in the shower and I started thinking about taking my life because I just felt so overwhelmed and so hurt and so, so, and the biggest mistake I made when I was on my mission is I didn't tell my therapist because I was afraid of being sent home. Why is that a mistake? Because I could have gotten the help I needed. Like, Would your therapist have sent you home? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I eventually... But I think there's a feeling you, that maybe not if you'd talked to your therapist earlier. No, I don't, I don't think so. Because what, what would happen was as things progressed, I would tell him that my situation was being worse, was getting worse. But it was only half of the truth, if that makes sense. Because you didn't want to be sent home. So I was in like pure crisis mode. Like I was just thinking all the time about killing myself. And in my fifth transfer, my second to last transfer, I was like opened up my companion. I was like, I'm really struggling with suicidal thoughts. Like I'm worried I'm going to get sent home. And Elder Horning, he said, you know, it's going to be okay. Just go tell your therapist. Like, you know, I know other missionaries that have had suicidal thoughts and they're not home. And so I did. And I told him that I had just started having suicidal thoughts. I didn't tell him that I had been having them for a long time because I was so afraid of being sent home. I, I think that's another important backdrop to my mission regarding the anxiety is that I so wanted to serve for two years. I, so a week after I got there, a poor sister had to go home and I felt so bad for her. And missionaries went home from my mission so frequently early for physical or mental health things. And, Every night, like number one on my prayer list was, dear Heavenly Father, I'm so glad I'm here. I really want to serve the whole two years. I do not want to go home early. And I knew that <laughs> I was so afraid to go home. I was so, I did not want that to happen. And a lot of my anxiety, like if I had knee pain, for example, I would have an anxiety attack that I had torn my meniscus and that I would have to go home. And I would go to the doctor and they would MRI my knee and they'd be like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. But I would still have it and I would still stress out about it. And 
so I, I wasn't telling my therapist everything and it just started spiraling out of control. And then my last area, um, I was, I was called, um, I was called to train a new missionary with another missionary that was also going home. That was going home at the end of the transfer. So the plan was that we were going to train this missionary together for a transfer and I was going to finish him up by myself and brand new area, YSA ward in Colorado Springs. First time I'm like right there in the city. I'm putting that in air quotes because Colorado Springs is not a city compared to Philadelphia, although it is an amazing place. <laughs> um, um, and it, I, I was excited cause it was like fresh start, you know, brand new place, YSA ward. I love my YSA ward. Um, and it just didn't get better. It kept getting worse. And like, I just couldn't handle it. And I just, I kept hurt, trying to hurt myself. I kept, and I, I was in a really bad state. Um, thanks for being so honest, Daniel, um, about what's going on. It seems they it just isolated there without anybody to be fully transparent about how you're feeling then just sort of then added to your load mm -hmm. um, and what you could or couldn't share in this deep desire to stay and knowing you needed help but wondering if asking for the needed help would result in you not staying. And I don't know if that feels like a box that just keeps closing on you a little bit of tighter and there's no doors, there's no sort of escape, so then you think suicide. Yeah. Um, and talk about self-harm. Why, now that you understand more what was going on, explain to our listeners why you would hit yourself and engage in self-harm. I was angry at myself. I said, Daniel, you're stupid. Or Elder Yesalanis, you're stupid. Why did you say that in a lesson? Why weren't you considerate to your companion in that moment? Why do you get afraid to talk to that person? Why are you having a hard time keeping this rule all the time? And I just got angry and I would hit myself. And then it got to be like, it got worse and worse. I'd be in a shower and I'd be like, why are you having emotional problems? And then I would hit myself. And it just, from what I understand now, it's just like a warped view of what my brain was telling me. And it was, my mental illness was telling me things that I didn't. That I didn't, that weren't logical or true, but to me in a moment, they felt so real and so true. And because I didn't, I was hiding myself and I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to about it. It just kept building up and the voices just kept building up. And I just kept, it was like a vicious cycle. And about a week before the end of my sixth transfer, I, my last, what ended up being my last transfer, um, I started getting really bad and I started contemplating overdosing on my medication. They had put me on medication while I was out there and cutting myself in the shower. And it was just so insuffer insufferable and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I called my mission president and I said, President, I'm worried I'm going to hurt myself. And I, he was like, well, why did he ask me why I hadn't told anyone? And I said, President, like, I'm really afraid that you're going to send me home. And he said, he was going into interviews and interviews in another zone. And so he said, I'll just, just 
you know, you're just, you know, just stay with your companion for this afternoon. I'll call you as soon as I'm done. So he calls me and he says, I, you know, I, I want to meet with you the next day. I want to meet with you Saturday morning. So we drove over to the mission home and he told me that he was sending me home. And it wasn't a choice that I had really any say in. Um, he said, you know, I just, I think it's the right thing for you. And I really did feel like a sense of relief wash over me. And then it was kind of immediately followed by like a sense of guilt because I felt like I had given up, like telling my mission president that I was going, that I was struggling because I, because like, like I said, I had known I've been worrying about opening up because I knew I might get sent home and I got sent home when I really opened up for the first time. Did you talk about suicide and self-harm? Did I talk to my, my mission president? I didn't talk to him about suicide. I talked to him about, I talked to my therapist um, about suicide. I told my mission president that I had been, I did not tell him I had been hurting myself. I told him I was worried that I was going to hurt myself. So even then I wasn't truly honest with everything that was going on. I was holding on to hope, I think, that I could stay. Do you know the backstory of why he decided to send you home based on the information that he knew? Um, so I know that after I called him and told him for the first time, he said, call Kelly. Kelly was my therapist. And I called Kelly and we just talked about it. And Kelly told me, he said, you know, judging off everything that's happening, I'm going to call President Stevenson and I'm going to just tell him that I think it might be a good idea for for you to go home, but I'm going to tell him what I think and it's his decision. And I, I think obviously my mission president followed appropriately and rightly followed the decisions of a health professional. And it sounded like when I went in there, like he had already called my stake president, like it had already been pretty much decided. Um, and it was a really, like, one of the most tender memories of my mission, though, is just the love I felt for my mission president during that interview because I was heartbroken. And I was so afraid. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know where it was going to go. Like, I didn't have a job. I didn't have, like, I had, I didn't have a lease on an apartment. I didn't have anywhere to go. And I was so afraid. You're not going to go, you're, you know, you want to go back to Philly. You don't want to go back to your family in Harrisburg, if I understand correctly. So you want to go back to where you were. But where you were is all these question marks. How does that work now? Yeah, exactly. I And I didn't know. And I was so frustrated. And I just re frustrated. And I just remember my mission president just hugging me. Well, for, I mean, I'm sure it was only for a couple of minutes, but it felt like it was like half hour. It was probably like five minutes. Um, I just felt so loved. He said, you know, he just said like, you're like my son and like, I'm so proud of you and you did such a good job and I'm so grateful that you served and you're going to be okay and I'm here for you. And it was just one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I have on my mission was just feeling his love. really touched by that. I'm touched by President Stevenson, if that's his name. Yeah. And I love what he said to you. You're like my son, and I'm so proud of what you've done. And then he just showed love. Mm -hmm. And I love that you love this man. Um, 
And I just think that's a beautiful ministering moment from a priesthood leader for you in a very difficult situation. Absolutely. I'm sure he wanted to say, see you serve two years because mm-hmm. um, he knows you and he believes in you, but he recognized the reality of the situation. Talk about why you relieved you that you were going home, even but at sometimes you weren't completely relieved. And I guess my assumption is that in some ways you might have been relieved because someone else made the decision for you. It was the right decision, but you needed someone else to make the decision for you, and there was relief in that. I just felt like there was an end to my suffering. Like I think that what you said is a good point. Like at first it didn't felt like it felt like at first it felt like I didn't give up. You know, someone else made that decision for me. I didn't say I'm done with this. I'm I'm out. Because you know, I I thought about that. Every missionary thinks about that. And I think I felt relief because it was President Stevenson and my counselor who ended up making a decision. But also just like, I was like the suffering, I felt like, I was like, it's gonna end. Like, you know, I'm gonna be okay, I have it out. I can just enjoy the next couple of days with my companions because I don't have to worry about this pain forever. Um, and unfortunately, after I got home and as I, was on the plane and stuff that relief turned to anger at myself because I felt like I realized I was like you gave up because you told him that you were struggling and you knew you would go home if you told him and so my mind like warped itself into that relief being a negative thing well talk about Bishop Jensen so Bishop Jensen is was my my home ward bishop um he was in my the Philadelphia YSA ward. He was the bishop <laughs> when I got baptized. Um, I've always been very close to him since I got baptized. Um, he, I kind of think of him as like my Mormon uncle. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I went through a lot of challenges, like all converts do the first couple of years, and he was always there for me. And he... He took me to get my patriarchal blessing. It was just me and him in the era of the patriarch. He took me, he ordained me to be an elder um, in the Melchizedek priesthood. He was my escort for my temple endowment. He was there for me through some excruciatingly difficult times. Um, He's like the reason, one of the biggest reasons I went on my mission is he believed in me. And so he continued to write me throughout my mission and when I, the day I, my mission president told me I was going home at 4 p.m., I got an email. So I, he told me in the morning and at 4 p.m. Colorado time, I got an email from Bishop Jensen and all it said was basically, Daniel, um, we love you. We're grateful for you. We will have a place for you to stay. We will have things for you to eat. We have food for you to eat. You will be, we will have the things you need. You're precious to us. That was it. Oh. And I felt so, so much comfort because Bishop, I've always really looked up to Bishop Jensen. He, just the way he always treated me, just really touched me. And, you know, there's a couple people whose opinion, <clears throat> opinion really mattered a lot to me. And his was one of them. And 
he continued to be there. Like he followed through. When I got home, he picked me up from the airport. He put me up in a apartment with two other recently returned missionaries. I just drove from the airport to this random apartment in West Philadelphia the night I got home. And then he just was there. He met with me every week after church until he was released every single week. And he just checked in and made sure I was okay. He would call treatment programs and look around and try to find out what I needed to do to get the help I needed. And like one of the things that really touched me the most is he called me every day for a whole year from the time I left my mission until the time I got, I started my full-time job a year later just to make sure I was okay and to hold me accountable. And he'd be like, Daniel, I'm not going to lay around today. Let's make a plan for the things we're going to do today. He called you every day, every morning at 7 a.m. for a whole year, no matter like where he was traveling. I mean, we missed some days, but pretty much every day for a whole year, no matter where he was traveling or where he was at the time, he made the time out of the day to do that. And I don't think I would be here without him. Like there were so many times where I felt so suicidal and we just talked to Bishop Jensen. He'd be like, Daniel, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm here for you. Let's, let's, let's think about what you can do today. Let's, like, what jobs are you going to apply to today? What friends are you going to go see today? What are you going to, how are you going to read your scriptures today? And he was so gentle. And if I couldn't do it the day before, like if I had completely failed and just laid around and not done what we had agreed to do, he would just be like, okay, Daniel, all right, that's in the past. What are we going to do like the next day, you know? And I like, it's very difficult for me to express the love that he had for me um, as my priesthood leader. And I don't know if I, until I had those experiences, just like the experience I had with President Stevenson, I didn't, I didn't think I realized how priesthood the, priesthood leaders are given the specific inspiration and a little piece of love that the savior has for his children to the people under their care. And I love that. Um, if you're listening, Bishop Jensen, thanks for your service for Daniel, you know, and what you've done and the model that you've done to help us all do better. Talk about, Daniel, why you got worse um, with your emotional health after your mission. I think you did, and I think your darkest days were not on your mission, even though those were your darkest days of your life. Up until that point, you actually had worse days and more of them for a longer period of time after your mission. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, The darkest, most horrible time of my life was after my mission. I, the only way to explain it is that my health, mental health just completely tanked. I became extremely suicidal, like constantly thinking of plans and ways to kill myself suicidal and having to go to the ER once 
because I was suicidal and I hated myself so much. And every morning, like not every morning, most mornings I would just punch myself for not an insignificant amount of time because I was so angry at myself. And I just like descended into this dark pit of depression and anxiety. Like I couldn't get up. I like, I'm not joking. Like I literally couldn't get up out of off the floor. Like I would <laughs> lie on the floor all day. If someone didn't make sure I wasn't. And I was in a pretty bad crisis and I, I had to go to the ER. Um, I had, been struggling with thinking about grabbing because I, I was seeing a LDS family services um, therapist and I told her about some of the struggles I've been having with thinking about cutting myself and thinking about um, hurting myself hurting myself in that way and killing myself in that way and she had told me she said all right I'm making a contract for safety with you it's just something I didn't know about before but it's basically some <clears throat> Something like, something like, if you hurt yourself again, you are going to the ER. Like, we're signing a contract now that that's happening. So she literally like wrote one out, had me sign it, and then two days later, I hurt myself really bad, and then I went to the ER. And they ended up not admitting me to the hospital, which I'm thankful for. I didn't have to go on a psychiatric hold. Um, they recommended me to a treat a couple of treatment programs. Um, but that that emotional hell lasted for a very long time after my mission. How long? Clustering, probably at least nine months. Nine months. And it was like, there were waves. Like I, I distinctly remember February being like a pretty good month. And like completely crashing afterwards. And I am so grateful to my ward and the church for how they took care of me during that time. Um, and the missionary and the missionary department. And because I, I spent a lot of time in intensive outpatient treatment programs. And it took a long time to find something that worked. And it took a long time to find a psychiatrist. And like there were so many people who were there for me. Like there were people who would go to the appointments with me because I was scared. I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to just walk into this outpatient treatment program and say like I'm suicidal. They would go with me and I'm so grateful for the love that people showed me. The people, the love that I felt from my friends and family during that time, but it was absolute hell for nine months. What was your di what turned this? Was it a diagnosis and then the right treatment, or was it multiple things that turned this? I think part of it was just time, you know, um, continued therapy. I was in therapy every week for that whole time. Um, just really understanding my situation and like understanding how I needed to think about myself and really putting effort into changing myself. Because I, I realized I was getting to points. I was getting to points where I felt like I was using my mental illness as a crutch. And 
part of it was really pushing myself and saying, Daniel, you're not defined by bipolar disorder. You're not defined by, yeah, I was also, I was diagnosed during that time um, in outpatient, intensive outpatient. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder for the first time in my life. And you're not defined by your, you're not defined by your, you're not defined by depression or bipolar. You can fight this. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win. Like it's still a very real thing. But like helping, my therapist helped me get to the point where I could kind of take that mindset. And so I was able to be more proactive. I'd be like, I will get enough sleep. I will get exercise today. I will force myself to have social interactions. And that helped a lot. And also I just, you know, I just had, like I can't emphasize, it's going to sound like very repetitive, but I cannot emphasize enough how much having good friends helped me overcome my difficulties. And you've got a couple of friends we wrote down before we went live, Tim and Matt in particular, and maybe others. Yeah, Tim and Matt, I mean, those guys are amazing. Tim's been my best friend for a long time. Um, I lived with him for a long time before my mission, about, about a year and a half before my mission. And he he called me every night. He lives in, he moved to Salt Lake City when I was on my mission, and he called me every night when I got home and he actually still calls me every night. <laughs> um, and no matter what, he was always there for me. And when I was like always in my darkest point, I always knew that I could text him and Matt's my minister. I didn't know him very well. Um, we were friends before my mission, but he had only been in a ward for a couple months, but he was assigned to be my minister and we just became so close after my mission. And he, you know, anytime I have had emotional difficulties, he was there. Like he, I could call him about anything. He was always open. And one of the things I love about Matt is like, he always knew how to redirect and kind of help me focus on different parts of the conversation of things in my life without minimal, minimalizing my struggle. Because sometimes when people try to help you, for example, with depression, they say, oh, things are all right. And I'll look at this, you know, look at, look at how good life is, you know? And I don't know if this makes sense, but like, um, with Matt, what he would do would be like, Daniel, I am so sorry that you are dealing with this. I'm so sorry that you're, you're, you know, you're having these mood swings and you're hurting yourself. Um, and he would, we would talk about that, but then he would also be like, and how about, how about the, how about the Eagles? You know, how about, how about the Sixers? You know, how about our horrible dating lives? And we were just, you know, we, it just was able to just kind of bring me out. And I didn't feel like he was minimalizing it because he took, he always took the opportunity to express his love and concern and kind of like a minister is supposed to do, like walk with you, um, walk with me in my shoes but he also was able to cheer me up and just really understand me. And I, every week, another, another cool thing about Matt is every week that dude showed up to drive me to Institute 20 minutes away every week, really, even if I didn't really want to go. And I'm really grateful for that. Way to go, Tim and Matt and all those that helped. Um, talk about... Um, if you could go back and talk to Elder Yesalanus in the darkest moment of your mission, 
Um, just for the timeline, our listeners, um, Elder Les- Yesel- Yeselanus left in s- December of 2017. We're recording this two years later, so you'd be coming home right now. He came home in September of 2018, so you've been home, you know, 14 months. But yeah. um, if you could go back and talk to yourself now, you're 14 months removed from coming home, and your older self could go talk to you in your darkest moment, what would you say? And that's partly you just talking to other listeners in their darkest moment. Because I call you the wounded healer, Daniel, is, you know, this desert. I use this quote quite a bit. You can authentically lead people out of this desert because you know this desert and you can speak to it. So what would you say to yourself? Back in Colorado Springs in your darkest moments. I would say, the first thing I would say that you need to call. You're not weak because you're having these problems. You need to call President Stevenson and tell him what's going on. You need to tell your therapist what's going on and if you are going to get sent home and that's okay. I would I would tell me, I would say, Elder Yeselanis, um, your mission and your mission is not worth your life. Your life, like living is the most important thing and you need to tell President Stevenson what's going on because you need to live. And I would say Elder Yeselanis, you're doing a really good job. Like it doesn't feel like it, but you're doing your best and the Savior is really proud of you. And you're going to look back and you're going to say, man, there are a lot of that mission that is bad, but you know, you, you, you are helping a lot of people and you're growing a lot of yourself and you're learning a lot and you can be proud of that. <laughs> but that doesn't take away from the fact that your life is more important than your mission. I love that. I have to think that Heavenly Father is really proud of what you did and then, um, and would somehow lift you up more than anybody could with the words he'd communicate to you if he could talk to you right now or could have talked to you back in Colorado Springs. And he did that through President Stevenson. And I love the way you, you were only positive with yourself as you talked to yourself. And you talked about, I mean, I just feel like you gave it at all. You gave everything you could have possibly given. You laid it out on the table. And I don't think completion is measured by time. I think completion is measured by you, you know, the great sacrifice that you did to go in the first place and then what you did. And the Heavenly Father that I love for all you early release missionaries, including Daniel that's here, um, I just think he loves you. And he would want to lift you up more than you probably thought you deserved to be lifted up. I've convinced we're much harder on ourselves than our loving Heavenly Parents would be. That doesn't excuse error and mortal weakness and all that stuff, but I think we're often our, um, our own worst enemies in some way. It's one of the great tools of Satan is to cause us not to see us as how we are. I also don't think this was Satan that caused this. I don't mm-hmm. think this was a spiritual weakness. I don't think it was the influence of Satan. I don't think he got a hold of you and put these thoughts in your head. To me, that's just a, it's like you had kidney disease or, you know, you, you know, which we understand. We would never think, well, Satan got a hold of you and confused you and you have kidney disease and you really, 
So I just think what was going on with you is not a spiritual weakness and couldn't be corrected by increased spiritual behavior. It needed to be it needed to be dealt with by clinical people because it wasn't a spiritual weakness. Are you okay with all that? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. Um, and it's something I'm very grateful for the teachings of the church, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints for is because I was kind of raised to believe that depression and mental illness were spiritual things. Um, and that they were things that could be treated through more prayer. Um, I was never really, I remember never really believing in medication and things like that. And I think it's so important for any Latter-day Saint struggling with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, any mental health issue to recognize that it's not a reflection on their character and that even if they're feeling it, Heavenly Father wants them to get help. He doesn't want them to go through it alone. He's given them. And I love uh, Elder Holland's talk, the, the classic, like a broken vessel. And I believe Sister Alberto, and I'm not quite sure how to say her name, also talked about <clears throat> depression and anxiety and in the general women's session and um like heavenly father wants you to get help like that's that's what he's given us these professionals for that's why he gives us therapists and psychiatrists and medication um and it's it's so important to for anyone who struggles with that to realize that they they are not a problem and also I think it's important, something I, I have discovered in my journey is that it's important to realize that mental illness can have a very debilitating effect on the spirit that you feel in your life. It can make it almost impossible to feel the spirit. I know for me, like when I came back, I would go to church and I loved church, but I hated church when I got back because I just couldn't, I just felt anxiety. I felt depression and I like couldn't even sit in on the lessons. I would literally just sit in the hallway because I couldn't feel it. And I would like drag through sacrament meeting. And I, I think it's important for what I would say to anyone who's struggling, any Latter-day Saint who struggles with mental health challenges is to be patient with yourself if you're having trouble feeling the spirit. Because I think that's a lot of the times where these kind of feelings of, you know, it's, a weakness on my end is because I can't feel the spirit. So therefore I must be doing something wrong, must be doing something wrong, but it is absolutely, absolutely a mental health challenges have an absolute effect on that. I really agree with that. I, you know, I just didn't understand much about that space. Um, but I recognize from other listener, other guests on the podcast is you have to be in an appropriate emotional state to be able to have the chemicals released in your brain that would cause you to feel the spirit. Mm -hmm. um, low anxiety versus high anxiety was what Sister Deborah McClelland taught in an Ensign article in September in high anxiety. It makes it very difficult to feel the spirit. And then Without that knowledge, you would self-conclude that you'd go backwards in your in your mind and think, okay, I'm not feeling the spirit because, and you'd list all the reasons of mm -hmm. um, why, and then you just conclude, I'm outside of God's love, 
and you'd start, I can see where self-harm and that cycle could potentially repeat itself as you just con- incorrectly conclude. So that's what I love what you're teaching us in the personal journey. Um, what would you say to yourself, and maybe it's the same answer, in your darkest moments since you came home? Um, I, I I think it would be... Sorry, were you going to finish this? Yeah, thing? just when you were the most suicidal and had the least hope and the most pain and the most self-harming. I think it was, I would just say, look at where you're going to be in December 2019. You know, you're going to have a job. You've been trying... I. I applied to hundreds of jobs. I had over tw- over fifteen in-person interviews. I like. I mean, Richard, you remember? Like, I was always always texting you, being like, "I have another interview." Like, I really think this is the one. And I would get to the very last stage, and I wouldn't get it. And that would just. What did you conclude about yourself when you didn't get those jobs? That it was like that. I was deficient that I had ruined my life by going on my mission and that I had destroyed my career and I would never get a job. I, I like, I was legitimately worried I was going to work at target the rest of my life. Um, or like a job like that. Um, but like, I would say, Daniel, like look Daniel, who's in his darkest hour in December, 2019, you're going to have, you're going to have a really good job that you really, really like. That's, more fun than a job you had before and pays more (laughs) and you're gonna you're gonna have still have lots of great friends and you're gonna have new people in your life and new priesthood leaders who are there to help you and guide you um and heavenly father is gonna help you feel his love so much and you're gonna have new experiences as you attend a temple you feel his love for you um i don't know if this is like a good place to insert this but it's just a thought that came to mind is like when i was struggling one of the most powerful experiences that i had and the temple has always been for me a place where i can feel the most clarity and peace when i've struggled with faith crises i've always been able to go back to the temple and feel something and while i was in some of my darkest moments I went to the temple of Matt, my friend, and we were in the prayer circle and the officiator prayed for all those struggling with physical, mental, and emotional illnesses. And it was, I I think that the officiator is probably just another line in the prayer, but I have felt Heavenly Father's love flow over me so much in that experience. I felt that he understood me and that he loved me and that here I was in his holy house in the most sacred place that I can be on earth. And of all the things he wanted me to hear, that was the thing he wanted me to hear. And I would tell struggling Daniel is that keep going. You're going to have little experiences like that where you keep feeling heavenly father's love. You're going to have great talks with your friends you're going to friends where they just remind you of the savior. You're going to have spiritual experience experiences when you pray. And it's most of the time it's going to be difficult. Like, you know, your prayers are going to feel silent, but you're going to have 
every time where you feel like you're going to give up, you're going to have an experience that's going to help you keep going. I love that. And I love the power of the temple in our lives. And I love the power of the temple in your life and the feeling is felt in that prayer circle. We've done a lot of podcasts with parents of kids that have died by suicide, Mm -hmm. as you know, and those parents are heroic to share their journey, but you're the you're the person in my life that has been the closest to suicide that I'm aware of. Um, and I'm, so I'm talking to all the listeners that may be really close, you know, some, somebody framed it to me. Yeah, Richard, there's, you talk about the light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't feel any light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Um, there's nothing but darkness. And that was really helpful for me to understand where someone could be in, so I thought a lot, what would I say to that person? And I'd probably just try to do what you did. I'd probably just say you've got to have hope that that it's going to get better and that all you can do some days is just choose to stay one more day. It's all, you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't go look for a job. You can't do all the things, and you just have to be okay with yourself that all you've able to do today was just make it another day because I think you're one day closer to seeing a light at the end of the tunnel feeling the love in the prayer circle or having just a little more hope in your life Um, and that can often come through a good therapist and appropriate medication that can help you be able to feel the spirit and feel hope um, to correct some of the mental and emotional challenges you're going through so listeners please stay please do what Daniel did there would be so many be heartbroken if you left. I think we all underestimate how many people love us and how many people would be heartbroken if we left. Any more thoughts on this subject, Daniel? No, I think I think that's a good place to leave it. Some would say, you know, you should be really angry at the church because <laughs> mm-hmm. you and maybe you have been at times. You joined your kind of everything was on track in some ways for your life and then you joined you know, the LDS church and you've honored your covenants by serving in every way you can. And you've had a lot of curveballs that have come into your life. And I don't know if you've ever felt anger at the church for your, your situation, or if you've been able to separate or how you've navigated that. And I asked that question for listeners that may need to hear the, how you've navigated this because they may be walking in a similar road. Yeah. I, I, I mean, absolutely. And I, I felt resentment and anger towards the church and, and in some cases still do. Um, I still feel some frustration and resentment about my mission and some of the things that happened. I feel resentment about the way exact obedience was taught to the missionaries. I was told by a, I was told by someone in my MTC branch presidency that we might die if we weren't exactly obedient. I was, the MTC president gave us a talk when we were leaving about how he still feels guilt because he didn't talk to this one person on his mission. A general authority came to our mission and said, it is possible to keep every single rule in the white handbook. And if you're not, you're seriously sinning. And 
I hold resentment about those teachings. I hold resentment because I believe that those teachings contributed to my poor mental health. I don't think it was just, uh, I don't think it was just like, I mean, it, an illness that is triggered by a stressful situation. Yes. But also my anxiety, part of my anxiety and my depression was caused because I never felt good enough. And it was because I was being taught things that said I could never be good enough. I was given this like impossible standard to live up to. Um, like the idea of Zach obedience was, I tried so hard and I could never do it. And I would get so angry at myself. And I think in some ways the, and I'm so grateful. I, I mean, I just want to say I'm so grateful for the changes that have been changed to the missionary program. I'm so grateful that missionaries can call home every week. I'm so grateful that I'm so grateful that they I'm so grateful that the new handbook's out and I've read the new handbook that's coming out and it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And so I think a lot of these changes are being made, but I, I do hold resentment because I do feel like some of the teachings, especially those about exact obedience, um, really damaged me while I was out there and they contributed to my early return and they contributed to the suicidal thoughts and they contributed to, <clears throat> and they contributed to the self-harm. And it's something I, I still kind of struggle with is understanding how could this great organization that is the Lord's restored church teach something that did that, did that to me. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, you just misunderstood that or you didn't understand what they meant. And I know like what I saw and what I observed and what I felt. And I know that that what the intentions were because I was there and I know how it, what it did to me. Um, and I, I hold some resentment about how how people talk about early return missionaries because we've kind of gotten to this point in our culture where I feel like our general membership is pretty accepting of those who return home early. Um, I feel like we, like all my friends and stuff were so happy to see me home. No one ever judged me, but, or I think there's, an error is that we often, when the way we talk about missions, we talk about missionaries. Anytime someone comes home early, it's always the missionary's fault. People say things like, missionaries today aren't self-reliant enough. They don't have enough resilience. That's why more missionaries are coming home early. They're, they say things like, you know, missionaries, millennial missionaries, you know, they're not prepared. They spend too much time on a computer and video games, so they're not prepared to deal with tough situations during mission. That's why more of them are coming home early. They'll say, oh, missionaries can go out at 18 right now, so they're too young. That's why they're coming home early. And I hold resentment about that because I feel like the blame is often placed on the missionary. And there's no, not necessarily thought placed, and maybe there are aspects of the system Maybe there are aspects of the missionary program that are wrong. Like maybe 
telling people that they can be exactly obedient is wrong because that's literally impossible. And I'm sorry, I don't think I'm answering your question. You are doing a good job of answering the question. <laughs> um, and so I would be honest, I still feel resentment of the church for, for those things. Why do you stay? I stay because I have been able to separate um, the institution from the religion. And I had to learn to accept the fact that the church as an institution is kind of like a big corporate business. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Like you need to have all those things for it to operate, for it to do all the good things that it does in the world. But like any business, there's going to be different departments and some things aren't going to work just as well as well. And some things aren't going to be quite right all the time. And then I can, I, I had to separate that. And so I had to separate things like the teachings on exact obedience and the shame that I felt from some of the aspects of my, that the, the difficult, the things that caused me to have problems on my mission, I had to separate that from the religion you know, that I love and the priesthood in the temple and the prophets and those things that have really boosted, boosted my testimony <clears throat> because at the end of the day, the, the things that I've experienced and like the difficult, whatever it is, the, the things that are wrong about the, what happened to me on my mission Like that doesn't change the fact that I I prayed to Heavenly Father when I was 21 and I found out for the first time that I had a Heavenly Father who had a literal body of flesh and bone who loved me and knew me and understood me. It doesn't change the fact that I prayed about the Book of Mormon and I felt so much love. It doesn't change the fact that I, I made covenants in the house of the Lord that I know are very real with my Heavenly Father and with my Savior. And... I think I just kind of have to put that separation in my mind. And also I just have to look and see the good that the church organization does. And like I've talked a lot about already today about, you know, the friends and the stake and the ward and the apostles, what they do. You've got a great Bishop, Bishop Hutchinson right now that replaced Bishop Jensen that you told me before we went live. That You just love this man too. Yeah. he He's absolutely wonderful. And like, you know, seeing how that whole thing worked, seeing how, you know, like just seeing how revelation was used to call a new bishop who's had a wonderful impact on my life. And it's just been so loving. And I think so. I think there's two parts to it. I think there's the separating the institution from the religion, but also realizing that there are good parts of the institution. And I think it's giving kind of giving everyone a chance because like I I've come to realize that I appreciate when people give me second chances so I need to give people in the church and church leaders second chances when they do things that I feel aren't right when you bravely open up like you did to me and our listeners with the pain you felt and the and the source of that pain and <laughs> What's the best response fellow members 
can give you when you bravely open up. I think listening is so important. I think that, um, I think that validating pain is really important. And saying like, I know that was hard for you. Cause a lot of times as members of the church, and I've noticed I do that, we like to get in defensive mode anytime anything that kind of if it hits crashes our worldview is questioned i know for me like sometimes if like a less active person is like i don't like this about the church like there's always this temptation to jump into defensive mode and be like well you misunderstand it you know and so i think the most important thing that we can do when people reach out like that is to not jump into defensive mode but to be like i understand how you feel or even not you don't have to say i understand how you feel because maybe you don't just say like i appreciate you telling me how you feel and I'm really sorry and it's okay that you have that pain and let's talk about it and don't try to change your mind just talk it through with them you know just be their friend have you felt safe with Bishop Jensen and Bishop Hutchinson talking to them about this kind of pain absolutely 100% and they're a model for how I'd like to learn how to get better at doing it with others yeah, I mean, that's a really, I love your answer. I love you sharing how you felt. And I would be somebody that five or 10 years ago would have would have said things like, oh, you shouldn't have felt that way or they didn't really mean it. And then it just makes you want to work harder to validate your pain because it's your pain. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just adding to your burden if I'm making you um, somehow prove your pain to me mm-hmm. by not believing it. And I just recognize that the restored church that we're in is capable of generating pain in people's lives. And I think we've got to learn to validate that pain because if we can't, we can't heal people um, that have church-generated pain is what I call it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's lots of pain that comes into our lives, but sometimes it comes from the very most trusted areas in our life, like a loved one or our own faith. And that sometimes can be the most complicated to sort of move through. And you're a model for moving through really difficult things. Um, You're a model for me for um, an incredible testimony of our church. Um, And you've had to go so dig. You've had to go so deep because, you know, you don't have a, you don't have, you know, family that's saying, you know, you're a convert. And so it's not like you've got four generations of pioneer ancestors looking over your shoulder that are wondering if you're going to stay in the church or not of this whole infrastructure of extended family. You're your own man here. Yeah, you've got friends that love you, but I I deeply admire your core foundational testimony of the church and that that's been able to sustain you. Um, it brought you in the church. It took you on a mission. You've blessed people on your mission, and now it's sustained you. And And so I, you know, you're 25 now, and you know, you want to obviously get married and raise a family. Yes. Do you worry that as your wife even listens to this podcast dating, that she will think less of you as she hears your story, either directly from you or indirectly in a podcast? You know, sometimes I worry about that. Um, I do believe that. I mean, I'm obviously no expert in this matter, but you know, I, I do believe that, you know, mental health can have a really big impact on a marriage and a relationship. Um, But 
at the end of the day, and I received a blessing once that said that, and it wasn't about like dating or marriage. Like that wasn't why I asked to receive the blessing. It was just one of those things that the spirit inspired that person to say. And they said, you know, whoever you marry will love you because of your mental health challenges. Like it's not going to be in spite of that. And that's kind of, you know, what I've, I've come to believe is that, you know, whoever I end up with, whoever I end up marrying is going to love me because this is part of me. Like, you know, it's my mental health problems are part of me. Like, you know, my physical health problems and he's going to love me for that. I've, really feel strongly that way. I'm not your priesthood leader <laughs> to have like sort of keys or inspiration for you, but I love that blessing. And I just, as long as I've known you, Daniel, I've felt impressed that this in some ways is a, you know, this c- could have come out later in life, mm-hmm. um, kind of where you were with your mental health. But I look at it, it came out at a really difficult time, but it came out before your marriage. Mm-hmm. And you've learned so much about yourself because you've been stretched in ways that you thought were not possible. <laughs> I don't know if this was like God's plan for you or just part of mortality to go through really hard things that are sort of come. But I just look at what you've learned about yourself and your ability to solve this. And I have to think, you know, if you introduce me to your fiance, your wife one day, um, and I... And, you know, I think she will just say, I love this part about Daniel. And you probably will able to help her in ways that no other boyfriend will ever be able to help her. You'll get complicated things. She'll be safe talking to you. You'll help heal each other. We're all a little broken when we go into marriage. It's not like we just become these perfect individuals and then we present ourselves to the dating world you know, it's one plus one equals three. My marriage is creating three because of one and one. It's mm-hmm. synergy, and that helps us then to be better people and better parents. So I think Heavenly Father would just, that blessing you got, I, and so I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to listeners that are thinking I'm damaged goods for whatever reason because of my family situation, personal things I've gone through, mistakes I've made and think I'm not worthy of somebody else or I will never be able to be the kind of husband and father. And I just think that is bad thinking. Um, and so if any single person's listening, um, I just think, you know, Daniel's a great example and he's just having faith that he will be married and be able to be a wonderful father and husband. And and this experience as I meet Daniel, maybe as a 50, 60, 70-year-old man, he will talk about these couple years of his life and how much they've meant to you in a very positive way. And maybe as a priesthood leader, as a father, as a husband, you'll be able to reach people and help people that no one else will be able to kind of do it, Daniel, because no one else knows that desert and can lead them people out. So in some ways, I'm sure you'd love to have this not be part of your life and never to have emotional health and to be able to serve a mission like so many other missionaries and not have emotional health challenges. I'm that would be a very honest desire that you would have. But there may be oh, the totality of your life when you look back as an 80, 90-year-old man, you know, and you see that the 40,000-foot level of your life, and maybe once we're on the other side, we see the 80,000-foot level, I have to think that you'll be glad mm-hmm. for what you've walked and what you understand and because of your ability to help others. So are you okay with all that? 
I am. And I, I think I can say that I'm, I'm glad, I'm not glad this happened, but I think it, I think the lessons I learned over the last, you know, the last two years and the pain I've gone through will help define my life for the better. I love that. I love the hope in that, but it's been brutal and I have no idea how brutal it's been and painful in those dark days. Um, but I'm glad you're here. And yeah, there's a side of me. I'd love to do a podcast in 10 years and in 50 years with you. I wish we could do them right now. I wish your older self could come on the podcast <laughs> right now and just pull up a mic and sit right next to you, your 55-year-old self 30 years from now, <laughs> and pull up a mic and just talk to us. And I think, yeah, he's going to have some gray hair because <laughs> I think we all do it 55. I do it 58. Um and I love your testimony of the church, and many of our millennials need a testimony like you've built. Um, you've had to develop that kind of a testimony pretty quickly. Some can write a testimony of their parents or a testimony of the culture, but you've had to decide, do you believe in our doctrine? And then because you're a convert, coming kind of another faith, I think you have perspective on how unique our doctrine is compared to other faiths and how much it's blessed your life. And then you have a foundation with the temple and your covenants to work through all the difficult cultural things that exist in our church that often are very difficult for our members. Historical things, current things that you're very aware of at your age group that often can be very difficult for our members to navigate. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? Um, i just like to... Just... <laughs> And just two quick things. I'm very grateful for the gospel. Like, I mean, any, I want that to be kind of the footnote of everything I say is to that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ means everything to me. And I know that this is the Lord's restored church. And I know that I'm, I'm not meaning to be like cliche, but like ending with my testimony, but truly the most precious thing in my life is my knowledge and my testimony that my savior lives, that I have a lovingly heavenly father and that his church has been restored. And the other thing I would say is that I just echo what Richard said about to those who are struggling and to those who are feeling, feeling in that dark suicidal place that the police stay. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. And it might not feel like it's going to be okay, but please hold on to hope and stay. I love that. I love that invitation. How do people find you on social media? Um, I have a very unique name, so you can just search me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. <laughs> and spell your last name for us. So it's Y-E-S-I-L-O-N-I-S. -S. So um, I encourage people that want to, you know, that resonate with Daniel's story and maybe want to share a little bit or maybe um, he can help you. Um if you're in a really tough spot, as he shared in this podcast, to reach out to Daniel. So, Daniel, yes, Alanis, thank you for joining us from Philadelphia. I feel like we're in a sports show now where we you know, <laughs> we do podcasts in different cities. We were in St. George earlier this month. We're not really trying to be a sports podcast, but it is fun to be in your home city of Philadelphia and have you on the podcast, Daniel. And thank you for sharing your story and having the courage to talk about really difficult stuff. And thank our listeners for turning it, tuning in to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.